Welcome to HSBC Global Viewpoint, the podcast series that brings together business leaders and industry experts to explore the latest global insights, trends, and opportunities. Make sure you're subscribed to stay up to date with new episodes. Thanks for listening, and now on to today's show. Welcome to the Emerging Market Spotlight, a podcast series from HSBC. The emerging markets landscape is more complex than ever. At the time of divergent monetary policy, high commodity prices, supply chain disruptions, and geopolitical tensions, join us as we speak with world's leading institutional investors, experts, policymakers, and thought leaders. To explore the challenges and opportunities, make sure you subscribe to HSBC Global Viewpoint and stay up to date with new episodes. Thanks for listening, and now on to today's show. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on the penultimate day of HSBC's Global Emerging Markets Conference for this very special session with James Bullard, President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. My name is Janet Henry. I'm HSBC's Global Chief Economist, and I'm delighted to be joined in conversation with President Bullard. Now, as you would expect, in someone in his role, he's had a long and distinguished career in policymaking in academia. And in addition to his broad-ranging responsibilities at the St. Louis Fed, he has had and still has an array of other roles, only some of which include serving on the board of directors of Concordance Academy of Leadership, being a member of the editorial advisory board of the National Institute Economic Review, and an honorary professor of economics at Washington University in St. Louis. And I think equally importantly, I should highlight that President Bullard has made Fed transparency and dialogue a priority on the international and national stage as well, of course, as on Main Street. And I think that's something very clear by his willingness to engage in conversation with all of us today. And despite all of his experience as an economist and a scholar, if you read anything recently on Bloomberg, on Reuters, or indeed pretty much any other financial press, Jim is typically described as known hawk for his desire to move early and swiftly on raising interest rates. Um, but particularly for younger participants on this call, we need to remember that a decade ago, he was widely viewed as an arch dove. Um, he was an early advocate in QE in 2008, and then warning about the possibility of Japanese-style deflation. He wrote an important paper in 2010, which helped to move the FOMC's thinking towards a second round of QE. So let's now hear from President Bullard. This will, of course, be an interactive session, initially led by conversations from me. I have that privilege. Um, But please do send in your questions on Slido at HSBC GEMS 2020, or indeed vote for others' questions. Um, But but first of all, I want to start with a a fairly broad question um, on where the US economy and the thinking of the FOMC is right now. So, um, uh, President Bullard, thank you again um, for joining us. Um, We clearly had um, a 75 basis point rate move um, in September and, and seemingly 
um, a clear message from Chair Powell on near-term intentions. So, so my question is, are you comfortable with the market's interpretation of the outcome of the meeting? Yeah, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And, and I'm looking forward to the questions and conversation because I always learn a lot uh, about what's on uh, the minds of market participants. Um, our recent meeting included a round of uh, the so-called dot plot, uh, which I've complained about at times. But here, the September meeting in particular is one where uh, the time, the near time horizon shortens because you're just giving a dot for the rest of the year uh, on the policy rate and on the other variables that are in uh, that exercise. And uh, if you look at the dots, it, it does look like uh, the committee is expecting a fair amount of uh, additional moves this year, at least as of the September meeting. And, uh, and so I think that that uh, was digested by markets and, and does seem to be the, uh, the right interpretation. Uh, for now, of course, we also have the press conference, which uh, uh, Jay Paul always handles uh, very well. And um, uh, we also have the Jackson Hole speech, uh, which uh, Jay gave and, and was very forthright about what needs to be done in the U.S. Uh, because we do have a lot of inflation in the U.S. Uh, the CPI inflation rate year over year as an eight handle. Um, uh, that's the one that most uh, households are seeing. And that kind of inflation is very tough on low and moderate income households. Uh, if you look at other measures, uh, the, the PCE measure is somewhat lower. In, and if you want to abstract from uh, food and energy prices or extreme movements in prices, either on the high side or the low side, you might look at something like the Dallas Fed trim mean inflation rate that looks at the entire distribution of price changes and, and throws out some on the high side and some on the low side. So there you're just looking at the center of the price change distribution. That number is 4.4% in the U.S., measured from one year ago. So no matter how you cut it, uh, I'm afraid we have quite a bit of inflation in the U.S., way above our 2% uh, inflation target. And that's why the uh, committee has uh, moved aggressively this year, starting in the second quarter, uh, uh, really the end of the first quarter, I guess, to um, uh, try to get policy position to bring inflation down. Uh, in a uh, what in a, a, as expedient a way as we can, um, and we're hopeful that uh, by acting uh, sooner and uh, with transparency and with clear communication, that we'll be able to get inflation down now, uh, as opposed to the 1970s, where inflation at these levels lingered for. Uh, 15 years or so, and the, the problem with the 1970s was that we had um, not just high inflation, it wasn't just that you're putting up with the price increases, it's that the real economy was also volatile during that period. You had four recessions in 13 years, culminating in the uh, 1981-82 recession, where the unemployment rate in the U.S. went to double digits. So, 
it's uh, imperative, I think, that we avoid that kind of scenario, that we uh, remain credible and consistent about our 2% inflation target, that we take action to move inflation back to 2%. And uh, so that's been uh, a theme, I would say, uh, during this part of the cycle. Now, uh, I can talk other about other uh, parts of the uh, uh, outlook, um, labor market, but maybe I'll just briefly uh, say a few things and then we can elaborate in the, in the, uh, as we go forward here. But the labor markets in the U.S. are extremely strong. And uh, if you want to ask about that, I'll, I'll go into more detail. But I, I think, uh, you know, claims this morning came in at under 200 thousands a super low number uh, for the U.S. And that was something that during the summer people were saying was rising, but it's not. And uh, but many other measures of labor markets continue to indicate uh, a lot of strength there. Um, GDP, we can talk about that. Uh, we actually had negative GDP growth in the first quarter and the second quarter, but um, I'm looking for uh, I, that's a bit inconsistent with the strong labor market, so we can talk about that issue as well. So I, most people's assessment is that that doesn't seem to be uh, the right uh, metric uh, right now to think about the U.S. economy. And, of course, we also have international considerations, which I think will be uh, uh, front and center here probably. Right. Uh, thank you for that. And you touched on, on a lot of points, and I can see looking at Slido, the, the questions are already uh, piling in. But, but first of all, I wanted to pick up on, on a few of the things that you already said. And, and you did mention the labour market um, in particular. As you said, looking at the initial jobless claims of under 200,000, um, by that report, it does still seem to be a labour market that's still um, very hot. Um, I know you've mentioned that the Kansas City's Fed labour market index and vacancies to unemployment ratio is still very high. That seems to be happening um, at the national level. So, so I suppose one of the questions is, especially when we're thinking about inflation going forward, um, how much softening would you be looking to see from indicators such as job openings and unemployment and wage growth before you would be comfortable with, with the idea of pausing um, on rate hikes? And, and perhaps as part of that, you, you might pick up on the the whole beverage debate. It's, it's a strange world when even non-economists are talking about beverage curves. Um, but suddenly everyone seems to be aware of the, um, the, the, the Fed's Waller and Figura paper that we really don't need to see unemployment rise because vacancies are just going to fall back in line. Um, but, but clearly you've got Summers and Blanchard on, on the other side of the debate that we, we would need to see 6% unemployment or so. Um, so, yeah, what would you look at? Um, and do you have a view on what the new Nero is? Or do you just wait to see what it takes for the wage growth to come down? Yeah, I think um, I think it's just a very tight labor market, uh, no matter how you cut it. I, I do like to look at the Kansas City Fed's labor market conditions index because that aggregates uh, many different measures of labor market performance into one single uh, metric, and it is at a high uh, that is similar to the late 1990s and the late 1990s in the U.S. was considered the best labor market of the entire post-war uh, era. So we're really at that kind of level as far as uh, labor market performance in the U.S. So you've got this 
vacancies, two vacancies for every unemployed worker. So it does seem like even a worker that became uh, unemployed today, the, the firm had trouble and, and got rid of some workers, then uh, that person would still have quite a few choices uh, going, you know, to get back into the labor market and get back into a good job. So I think, um, uh, you know, it's very encouraging to have that kind of labor market. But it also means that uh, this is probably a good time to try to get the inflation under control while the labor market's uh, performing so well. Now, um, on that beverage curve, uh, I think the Figueroa-Waller uh, argument is carrying the day so far. Uh, the uh, job openings, uh, I guess they've fluctuated some, but they've come down uh uh, since earlier this year, and the unemployment rate really hasn't moved. So that would be consistent uh, uh, with their argument, which I think is more of a short-term argument. I would see Blanchard Summers thinking more like two years out into the future. If you think that far into the future, then um, you know probably unemployment will return to mean and, and job openings will return to mean over, over a two- or three-year period period. I think that's probably a simple uh, sort of forecast that everybody would make. Uh, 3.7% unemployment in the U.S. is not the most common thing uh, if you look at the post-war uh, data. So uh, if it goes up as the as the summary of economic projections indicated to something like 4.4%, I would interpret that as just uh, a return to mean of the unemployment rate to something closer to the natural rate of unemployment for the U.S. economy, which is often estimated to be four and a quarter to four and a half percent, and of course has wide confidence bounds around those estimates. So, uh, you know, I don't think it's reasonable to expect that you'd stay at 3.7 percent for uh, a long time into the future. Um, but with all these job openings, uh, maybe that's what will happen. I have a hard time seeing the unemployment rate go up very much with all these job openings because it would be so easy right now anyway for a, a worker that uh, got displaced to to find a new job. We've also got quits at high levels, which is indicating that people are confident that they can uh, quit their job and take a new job. Uh, so that's happening as well. Um, so a lot to like. Uh, about the labor market, and and it suggests that the Fed can concentrate on its uh, the inflation part of its mandate. Thank you. And I um, I want to turn to global developments, but at the moment I want to stay on the subject of, of further tightening of policy because I'm getting some questions um, on the um, on the housing market. You might want to touch on that. But the other one that I wanted to ask you about is really the the role of the balance sheet. In policy, as opposed to just interest rates, um, and that's really, you know, one of the factors that are most important to keep in mind when considering the longer-term size and, uh, and composition of the balance sheet. But also, just the question of to what extent does quantitative tightening actually tighten financial conditions? Is it just a signalling of policy, or do you think it is something that is tightening U.S. Um, financial conditions or indeed global financial conditions? Uh, well, I was pleased that uh, we got the uh, balance sheet runoff started in the second quarter of this year. We phased that in, so it's really just hitting full stride, I believe, here in September. Um, and, 
you know, my preference is to kind of wait and see on that part of the policy uh, how things are developing, you know, at least six months or even longer uh, to make sure that it's doing what we think it's doing, uh, which uh, should be to help put upward pressure on the longer end of the yield curve compared to what it would otherwise be. I think we were a little late in getting started on the uh, on the uh, balance sheet runoff. Um, financial conditions actually stabilized uh, a lot, uh, even in the fall of 2020. Uh, it's true that in March and April of 2020, financial stress measures, such as the St. Louis Fed's financial stress measure, uh, we're at 2008 levels. So at that point, it looked like uh, you know you could have a, a financial crisis on top of the pandemic, and that would have been uh, a clear disaster, I think. But we avoided that, and and financial conditions eased considerably by the time we got to the fall of 2020, and we could have contemplated somehow uh, thinking about okay, well maybe we don't need all these purchases as we go through. Also, I think the initial impetus of uh, uh, asset purchases was to include the mortgage-backed securities in that calculation because, you know, I thought, and I think probably everyone thought, well, that the housing market would have trouble as we tried to get our, make our way through the pandemic. But it turned out to be the opposite case where uh, the housing market actually boomed in the U.S. and uh, prices were up uh, dramatically until just now uh, with finally uh, turning down a little bit, but they've been up uh, dramatically in the U.S. And, uh, you know, I, I argued that in 2021, that maybe we shouldn't be feeding into that process, but we had to look for the right moment to uh, pull back on our asset purchases. We got that going in the spring of this year, and now I want to see uh, how that affects the economy. The, as you know, the academic estimates on this are kind of all over the map. Uh, and even the market commentary is is widespread. So it's, it's kind of a, a part of the policy. It's hard to assess. And we're obviously focused on the interest rate uh, part of our, uh, the interest rate part of our toolkit right now. So uh, I like having the QT going on because I think that's helping us. But to what degree it's helping us, I think, is a good question and something I want to get feedback on from uh, financial markets and elsewhere as we go forward. Yeah, absolutely. As you say, it's um, trying to forecast something we have little or no experience of um, historically, but but there are no shortage well, of estimates out there from from. I do want to say one. I do want to say one. Yeah, I do want to say one other thing about this that I I like to emphasize, which is that in other parts of the last fifteen years, you might have one central bank uh, with a quantitative easing program and not the other major central banks, uh, but here you've got. Uh, central banks moving in the same direction on this dimension. And so it's a, a global QT, and I, I'm anxious to see uh, to what extent uh, that affects uh, global financial conditions. So we'll see as we go forward. But we'll keep an eye on this. Um, but uh, the balance sheet expanded a lot in the U.S., and uh, I think we can uh, pull back and, and get some help on our inflation objective through this channel. But, but, but and, and related um, to that, as you say, even though there is a global monetary tightening, 
um, underway. In many ways, it is being led by the world's most important central bank, which is, of course, um, the Federal Reserve. And I suppose in the course of the last week, particularly um, sitting here in London, um, it's clear that um, what's what's happening, you know, the the global tightening, like it or not, um, is coming through thick and fast. You've seen some central banks globally being reluctant to um, raise rates for one reason or another. They've been intervening um, on their currency. But I suppose for you, you know, that setting policy primarily, well, entirely for the US um, economy um, and US inflation, um, how are you thinking about some of these global influences? Yeah, I know that the US dollar policy sits with Treasury, um, but a strong dollar and the impact of a strong dollar on the rest of the world, how does that impact on the FOMC's discussion on inflation? Because, you know, I suppose it's quite helpful in the fight against um, inflation. Um, and related to that, I suppose partly to do with the strength of the dollar, the, the volatility that we are seeing in global markets. How does that feed into the discussions and the way that you think about the, the outlook for, for what is appropriate policy for the U.S. economy? Well, uh, <clears throat> we certainly do look at international developments uh, carefully and try to calibrate uh, what the impact will be back t- uh, to the U.S. Um, I have been pleased as we got going here in 2022 uh, that many central banks around the world anticipated Fed action and moved ahead of the Fed uh, as part of their policy, understanding uh, where the Federal Reserve was likely to go. Uh, uh, going forward, understanding the inflation situation in the U.S. and that we were going to have to act uh, aggressively to bring inflation under control. And so I think that has helped um, uh, limit the uh, this damage that might have otherwise occurred from, let's say, a surprise move uh, in the U.S. that, that uh, other central banks didn't have time to react to. We certainly heard a lot about this uh, in the earlier era, the, the quantitative easing era, where uh, uh, foreign central banks said that they were surprised by Fed action and then and they weren't sure what our policy was, and then this was feeding back to them. So, but here, uh, I think we made it clear, and we've been forthright. We've had a lot more transparency about uh, what we're trying to do, and that has allowed uh, uh, many uh, central banks around the world to act in tandem. Uh, and calibrate their policies appropriately for their jurisdictions uh, as the Fed was moving. So um, that part, I think, has helped us a lot uh, this year uh, to limit uh, the sorts of um, uh, disorderly adjustment that might otherwise occur. Uh, And, you know, obviously we've got a, a you know, the, the UK has been the focal point just here in recent days, but but I would just step back from that a little bit and, and say that the broader picture, considering how much we've moved and how fast we've moved, I think the transparency and forthrightness uh, in the communication around this has, has worked to our advantage globally. And, um, and you know, overall, I think uh, we've had a pretty good response. So the strength of the dollar at the moment, as you say, you watch it as it goes along, but um, I don't want to dwell on the dollar too long, but there are a lot of questions related to it. So I just want to draw on a couple of these. Um, I think you kind of addressed it. uh, Has the dollar strengthened uh, enough yet to be a factor in in policymaking for the US? 
Um, but, but also a couple of questions relating to the financial stability angle. Um, given the, the ascent of the dollar and so many currencies, is there a risk? Well, I suppose there always has to be a risk, doesn't there, that somewhere in the world you could have a financial event that could have a feedback effect into the US economy. Someone's likened it to an LTCM um, type of um, risk. Yeah, I think uh, this is uh, something we're always watching and uh, always monitoring. Uh, if you look at the 94 tightening cycle, uh, which was also 300 uh, basis points uh, at that time, uh, you one day you woke up and you got Orange County, uh, California, uh, uh, declaring bankruptcy. So I think that's the sort of thing that can happen. LTCM was another uh, episode in the annals of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, financial instability. So we do watch this uh, very carefully. Um, I think, but I also think that uh, by being clear and, and having forward guidance on uh, likely moves going forward, that you can mitigate some of that risk uh, because people aren't taken by surprise as much as they otherwise would have been uh, by the, uh, you know, by the um, upward movement at the short end of the of the yield curve. So I think, um, you know, so far so good. Uh, but uh, I would I would continue to watch this carefully. Yes, yeah, yes, of course. Um, and and on the um, going back to inflation, because the the top question on Slido by far um, is um, about uh, CPI, the reported. Um, CPI. So the question is, is the Fed too focused, brackets, backward looking on year on year CPI? Uh, I mean, I would disappoint you that. I, I think it's very clear um, that the US does look um, at monthly inflation rates um, and that's thus given long lag times for policy efficacy. I think the basic the basic question is, um, and we're getting a few of them, is, is are the risks increasingly skewed towards over tightening rather than under tightening um, by, by looking at these reported inflation figures? Uh, I don't really think so. I think, uh, at least speaking for myself, uh, my goal has been to get the policy rate to a level that I think is reasonable for this environment. And just to remind everybody, we started at near zero, which I think was not reasonable. Uh, and so we've had to move uh, a lot in a short period of time. However, uh, I think we can get to a level that makes sense. And then at that point, I think you could you could argue that we'd be back to more ordinary sort of monetary policy where you'd be taking account of the recent data and you'd be making adjustments uh, in, you know, or standing pat, uh, depending on uh, how the data come, has come in. But, you know, starting out at the beginning of 2022 here, we were still in uh, pandemic mode, uh, which, uh, you know, maybe was appropriate still. But uh, uh, as we've moved to the endemic phase of the pandemic, uh, and we've had uh, much higher inflation than anticipated, uh, it's been imperative that we move the policy rate off the zero, near zero level and get up to some level that would be appropriate for the amount of inflation that we have. And we have quite a bit. If you do some kind of Taylor rule uh, calculation, uh, the Taylor rule 
calculation that you do will be dominated by the amount of inflation that you put in the inflation gap part of the Taylor rule. So it's almost all being driven uh, by inflation. You have to make other assumptions there about the real short-term interest rate and output gaps and things like that, coefficients that you want to use. But the, but no matter how you cut it, uh, that inflation gap term is, is going to be the dominant uh, term. So if those of that are listening and uh, here and want to see uh, what I've been thinking about that. I did give a talk at uh, Stanford in May uh, that addressed that issue. And that, that calculation at that time said, well, the minimal level that we have to get up to is probably three and a half percent. But unfortunately, since that time, that was only May, that's only uh, four months ago. But since that time, the, the data has come in even worse uh, than we uh, were anticipating. And if you do that over again, you get more like four and a half percent on that kind of calculation. You saw that in the dot plot. Uh, that came out in September where the dots of, uh, on policy had moved up uh, quite a bit for 2022. But I think appropriately, given that, you know, markets and us were expecting inflation to moderate, and it didn't really, uh, didn't moderate, went in the other other direction. So on this issue about, uh, you know, you're, you're looking at this lagging indicator of inflation, and is that really the right thing to do? I think, uh you know, we do pay a lot of attention to inflation expectations, and I in particular like the um, market-based measures of uh, inflation expectations that are derived from the tips market, and also inflation swaps and other methods. And um, I'm pleased that those have come uh, back down uh, under 3%, even under 2.5%, five-year and five-year five year forward. So that's uh, very encouraging from my point of view. Uh, markets are expecting inflation to come back under control at those kinds of horizons. And I think that's exactly what we need here. Plenty of credibility on that. However, markets are also wrong sometimes about what's actually going to happen. And, and we're also wrong sometimes. So I think there's a risk management element to this where we stay higher for longer to make sure that we're actually seeing the disinflation that we're going to need to send inflation back to 2%. Um, yes, as you say, markets markets are sometimes wrong, and I suppose financial markets still um, are, are based on what central banks are telling them. And most central banks in the world, if they have a broadly speaking a two percent inflation target in two years' time, they're pretty much always forecasting that it's going to get back um, to two percent kind of levels. Um, and actually, I think that 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 feeds into the whole the whole framework at the moment. It's very clear that the intent is to to raise rates swiftly to get them back to an appropriate level, and um, at least get them you know a bit more restrictive um, as soon as possible. Uh, so I don't think anyone doubts the intention that that um, the Fed and others want to prevent a wage price spiral and get inflation on a downward track. Uh, but it's interesting when I talk to clients, and I've been in Singapore earlier this week. It was remarkable how many people asked the question, are we ever going to get back to 2%? Um, you know, once the, even though a central banker isn't going to say it, once we get back to maybe three, is isn't that isn't that enough 
um, that we're, we're not going to sque- continue to squeeze the economy to the intent on getting to the, the 2% level. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about, um, about that as much as, you know, I think it, one, I suppose, is there any possibility that an inflation target is moved or would that be dangerous in itself? Are you worried that people are asking that question, that central banks are just not going to um, stick to their, their their policy until they get back to that 2% level? Um, how do you think about not just financial market and measures of inflation expectations, but um, the fact that these conversations are now being had? Yeah, I think, you know, the notion that you would start to mess around with the inflation target right when you get challenged with high inflation, that's, that sounds like a replay of the 1970s to me. And so I think this is just a totally bad idea. Uh, and, you know, I know people are are talking about that, but we'll maintain credibility uh, inflation target. We will push inflation uh, to 2%. And uh, we'll do it in a reasonably uh, compact time frame. So I, I think, uh, you know, the thing about the 2% target is that it was enormously successful since the 1990s when it was first introduced uh, and has been adopted around the world as a, as a global standard. So I think if you had a major central bank like the Fed uh, deviating from that, that you'd have other central banks then also deviating and you'd get uh, you'd get a chaotic situation around the world where you're back in the in the 1970s uh, soup where uh, economies are volatile, recessions are common and inflation is high and variable. So I, I don't think we want to go in this direction. Uh, what you want to do is uh, uh, press on to to get inflation back to 2% as, as soon as is reasonably uh, possible. And uh, I think it is possible because um, I think what's really going on here, uh, a better way to think about it is that um, we've been through a war. Uh, George Hall of Yale University and Tom Sargent of NYU have a paper called Financing Three World Wars. And what they meant was World War I, World War II, and the pandemic. And uh, I think it it is like a war in the sense that the national crisis occurs. Um, the government borrows a lot of money uh, to pay for the uh, uh, mitigating the crisis, and the central bank uh, accommodates that borrowing. Uh, but this all makes sense because you're in a national crisis, as we were in, especially in March and April of 2020. And then, uh, but then the war is over, and we know wars around the world, both for the winners and losers, tends to create inflation. But when the war is over, you switch back to the pre-war policy of uh, less deficit spending and uh, and a monetary authority that concentrates on its inflation target. And that, to me, is exactly what's happening uh, in uh, both on the fiscal side in U.S. politics and also on the monetary side with the FOMC, uh, that you're switching back to the pre-pandemic policy. And uh, what this does is drive inflation expectations right back to the target and actual inflation falls behind and comes right back to target. So I'm hopeful that we can get that uh, kind of dynamic going. But And I think we're in process here of getting having exactly the right kind of policy to get that to happen. So it's not coming through Phillips curve, according to my my assessment here, and that's why I de-emphasize uh, labor markets. The Phillips curve is very flat. 
in the U.S. And uh, if you tried to use that channel uh, to get inflation down, uh, uh, unemployment would really have to go to uh, very high levels. So I'm not quite sure what uh, people have in mind that are talking through through that kind of language about how we're going to get inflation down. I don't think that's how this works. What what you do is you get uh, inflation expectations back to the 2% target, and you get a disinflationary process going in the U.S. that doesn't have that much to do with labor markets themselves and has more to do with the pricing power of, of firms and uh, uh, the fear of firms that they might lose market share if they continue to be cavalier about their price increases. That's my interpretation of the 1980s uh, as to what happened. Uh, those firms that were lazy and thought they would just increase prices whenever they wanted got put out of business by other firms that were uh, productivity-oriented and low-cost-oriented. And uh, those latter firms carried the day. That drove a fierce uh, disinflationary process that, that pushed inflation down dramatically in the U.S. So I think uh, we can get that kind of process going. Uh, we'll see disinflation in the U.S. and we'll get back to the target in a relatively short time frame. Thank, thank you for that, because actually the, the, the top question here, but I think you've answered it already, is, is how much of inflation is related to supply issues? Is there a risk that higher rates bring demand down, but inflation remains high due to supply constraints? Um, but um, I did, I mean, happy for you to add anything if you want to um, on that, but it's still in terms of the policy setting. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah. yeah, we do. Of course, we look at global uh, commodity prices. They have come off their highs, uh, and you've got other, obviously, factors driving that with the war in Ukraine and, uh, and to some extent, Chinese policy as well. Uh, so, um, but... The numbers I cited at the beginning for the Dallas Fed trim mean inflation rate, you're already uh, throwing out the most extreme increases and decreases in the price change distribution. You're just looking at the center of the price change distribution, and that is still 4.4% uh, in the U.S. So that you might interpret that as the, the inflation that the Fed has to take care of as opposed to uh, the inflation that might be due to uh, uh, global uh, factors that are bouncing up and down uh, because of uh, the war or because of Chinese policy. So, um, uh, so I, I think this notion of uh, throwing out food and energy or or using some other method to look at the center of the price change distribution gets at the question of uh, commodity price movements, and uh, I think it's clear that we have to act. Uh, even knowing uh, what's happening with commodity prices, but we have to act because the center of the price change distribution is also moving uh, pretty aggressively, and we have to get that part under control. And in terms of getting back to the whole uh, policy framework um, regarding inflation, um, flexible average inflation targeting, um, is, it, is it over? Um, is it just back to 2% core PCE now and always? Um, or, or is there, um, I and mean, you've mentioned Taylor rules um, a couple of times in this discussion already, um, that at least gives you an assessment of where the current appropriate policy setting might be. Um, but are, are there advocates on the FOMC, do you think, for, for a more systematic rates policy like a Taylor rule? Or, or do you see um, you know, flexible average inflation targeting being talked about again a lot more? Or is it just we're getting back to 2% core PCE? Um, 
I, I think you know Taylor rules were developed in a in an era of the trying to explain the eighties and the nineties, which is pretty successful policy in the U.S. and which did bring inflation uh, by about nineteen ninety five to two percent, and over the ninety five to two thousand five period, inflation was averaged uh, almost exactly two uh, percent. So, pretty successful. Um, I think the, the those rules were uh, not designed to talk about the effective lower bound, and so that you had a lot of trouble uh, once we hit the zero lower bound after the global financial crisis. Uh, you had a lot of trouble talking about policy in in, um, in Taylor rule terms. But now that we're back, sorry, back in the higher inflation environment, uh, it makes complete sense. I think again to uh, think in terms of Taylor rules as far as where the level of the policy rate should be. Uh, so um, I'd certainly be an advocate of, of uh, looking at that and considering that as, as, as giving us a recipe for the right types of um, uh, policy moves to make in this environment. Now, uh, a lot would depend on exactly what inflation gap are you going to put into that Taylor rule? Because if you put a put, if you just take CPI inflation and and take the inflation target off and multiply it by something, you're going to get a very very high uh, policy rate. But uh, uh, and so maybe that's uh, not the way to think about it. But uh, but I think to uh, look at other types, other measures of inflation that uh, that throw out the most extreme movements. Um, on the high and the low side would be uh, give you a better, a more realistic idea of uh, of where you should be on the on the policy rate. As far as the flexible average inflation targeting framework, uh, I guess what I'd like to say about that is that you should draw a little picture in your mind, and uh, there are two branches in this picture. One is the low inflation branch, and the effective lower bound branch. And the other is the high inflation branch. And on the low inflation branch, uh, monetary policy should be uh, looking at flexible average inflation targeting framework because that was designed to talk about the effects of the uh, zero lower bound on, on monetary policy. What do you do in a world where uh, inflation is very low and nominal interest rates are very low? How do you conduct stabilization policy in that environment? That's what the flexible average inflation targeting uh, framework was for. If it's a high inflation environment, it's just, you know, see Volcker. Uh, so we know, as it was often said as we were developing the flexible average inflation targeting framework, well, well, if inflation's high, we know what we have to do. And uh, so we're not trying to design something for that, we, we know that we, uh, you know, we'll have to conduct policy in a way to return inflation to target from the high side. The question is, when inflation is very low, it's below your target and nominal interest rates are very low, how should you conduct monetary policy then? So there are kind of two branches to this. Uh, if inflation is low, then I think fate might uh, still be very relevant. But if, if inflation is high, uh, we got the recipe from from the Volcker era. Absolutely. And you mentioned you know, Taylor rules being devised during the 80s and the 90s uh, and used then, but for the, the last couple of decades, perhaps less so, um, which you know, leads me to a question regarding globalization effects. You know, if we think about the last few decades in particular, when we had persistent globalization until a couple of years 
um, before the pandemic um, and a lot of automation in the goods sector. Um, how much of the last 20 years would you say the low stable inflation was a function of central bank credibility? But to what extent did central banks also get lucky by, by global developments? And that actually now maybe we are in a, a, a more volatile world. Maybe it is just going to be more like the 70s or the 80s, where we get um, external factors, whether it's a war, a pandemic, um, or, or deglobalization forces, are just persistently going to mean uh, an era of, of more volatility um, in activity and in inflation and potentially interest rates. Yeah, I mean, inflation targeting is inflation targeting, and you know, it doesn't say, uh, "Oh, you can miss your inflation target if there's globalization going on or there's deglobalization going on." Uh, I think the the whole key to this is to take those factors into account appropriately, and then to put it in Milton Friedman kind of terms, you know, print the right amount of money for the situation that you're in. Uh, so that you hit the inflation target. So that's the art of central banking. But but just because there are, are factors, winds are blowing in one direction or another, doesn't mean that you can't hit your inflation target. I think you still can, uh, but it's uh, you know sort of the amount of money that you have to print is somewhat different uh, in one situation versus another. Uh, so I I. I push back a little bit against these kinds of arguments to say, well, we're going to miss on the high side for a long time because of some kind of factors that we should be taking those into account and then conducting the right monetary policy in that environment so that we hit the inflation target. If you, if you continually miss uh, your inflation target, then you just lose, com uh, uh, you lose credibility on the entire policy and markets start to doubt that you're trying to do anything at all. Uh, that's the recipe, you know, for the earlier era in the 70s where uh, inflation drifted around in all different countries and you had high and variable inflation and a volatile uh, real economy, lots of recessions. So um, so I, I appreciate that uh, that fundamentals of the global economy uh, may be changing and probably are changing. But our job is to take those into account and get the right monetary policy given those uh, changes. Thank you. So I suppose if it is going to be a world where we are subject to perhaps less favourable influences on inflation, um, it sounds like you are talking about a world of, of a deterioration in the growth um, inflation trade-off. And I wanted to link that into um, the idea of the, the dots. You started off with the dots, what they were pointing to for the end of the year, which, as you said, in September doesn't leave um, too much scope for a big divergence um, so late in the year. But, but a few years ago, you said you you wouldn't submit um, a long-term dot, um, such that dot, that dot wasn't particularly useful. Um, so what is that still your view, um, that, um, you know, uh, in this particularly uncertain world, that a long-term dot is, is not useful. Um, but also, could you just talk, even if there isn't a number on it, um, do you have any thoughts about even the direction of the long-term equilibrium rate um, or natural rate? Um, a few years ago, you'd suggested that you know, some demographic factors, um, productivity factors and demand for safe assets might mean a persistently low um, natural interest rate. Um, or do you think that there are factors that maybe um, it may have forced it um, a little bit higher? Um, in terms of the long-term natural rate, yeah, this is a great, uh, a great thing to uh, talk about further. I think um, when we do this dot plot, uh, 
the place where there's the most uncertainty is actually the long run column there uh, where uh, people are saying where, where we're going to be, you know, 10 or 20 years from now or something like that. And there's actually tremendous amounts of uncertainty about that. And I would say uh, if you look at economic history, there are long eras of, let's say, high productivity growth or low productivity growth. Uh, there are changes in demographics over very long time periods. Uh, and so I think that, uh, you know, you're better off thinking about, well, uh, if we could be in a, say, a low productivity era uh, in the future, and uh, that would dictate one type of monetary policy, but you could be in a high productivity era in the future, and that would dictate uh, different levels of the policy rate and, and so on. So uh, because of that, uh, I did quit uh, submitting longer run dots, except on the inflation target, because I think um, given those fundamentals, you should be able to conduct a, a policy that hits your inflation target if you understand uh, what, the, uh, what the fundamentals are for the economy. Um, but I, I like the regime. I still like the regime switching idea. Uh, you know, if you look back historically, and there are clearly periods uh, that are dominated by uh, certain types of fundamental developments, and then there are other long periods that are are developed by uh, that are characterized by other types of developments. And monetary policy would have to be different in those two worlds. So averaging across those and saying, well, that's your long run. Uh, that's your long run uh, outcome is not really giving you the right picture of uh, how the world works. I think it's, it's uh, you take that average, that average is something that never occurs. Uh, you're either in the high regime or the low regime. So, um, so you're kind of getting the wrong, uh, wrong idea if you, if you look at that. Also the long run part of the dot plot or any forecast, because there's a lot of mean reversion, uh, that gives you this path uh, for uh, the policy rate and for other variables, uh, because what happens is you just take from where wherever you are today, and then you draw a line back to whatever you think the mean is in the long run, uh, and that's that path is what's critical for the uh, implementation of monetary policy. But but the path could be far away from uh, what is realistic because. You don't know what the long run outcome is, and so you're drawing paths into uh, to a dot that has a lot of uncertainty around it. So, this is kind of techno babble, but uh, uh, I think uh, uh, I think this is an important consideration for how we communicate uh, policy. Yeah, no, no, I would agree with that. And in fact, um, it, there's a question here that a lot of people like the sound of. Actually, um, are, are we? How do you interpret U.S. real yields now or comfortably over one and a half percent? I've been pleased that we've been able to get uh, real yields higher. Um, and I think that that is consistent with our policy goals uh, and, and consistent with the idea that we want to get inflation uh, back down to two percent. I would say overall, it's still a low real interest rate world, but to have uh, real interest rates above that uh, low level now uh, and into positive territory is an encouraging sign. Okay, so we're still low, because that was another question. I'm going to spend the last eight minutes 
um, on the questions all, all on Slido. The next question was, has higher for longer now officially replaced lower for longer? Um, it sounds like you're saying we're still low, just not uh, at the lower bound. Um, the, there's a historical I, question. I would say on yeah. that, on the higher for longer, um, I do think that markets and maybe policymakers too are coming around to the view that, okay, well, we have quite a bit of inflation. It will take a while for it to go back to 2%. And um, it probably won't go back in a straight line. You wouldn't ever expect that. And so, uh, and the and the Fed is going to have to be careful about, you know, not over-interpreting a, a decline in inflation as it goes back to 2%. So all those things seem to indicate that you'd have a higher uh, policy rate for longer than um than, than markets might have thought even one year ago. Um, it's this isn't the kind of thing where you can just you know move the policy rate up and everything corrects itself immediately. Uh, that's not how macroeconomics work. So uh, even though I've I've gave a story about why I think this will be successful and happen in a relatively short time frame, that still probably means uh, higher for longer than than what markets would have anticipated previously. Right. Okay. Thank you for for clarifying that. But but on your point that when you set policy, it doesn't you know always work in a straight line against everything you're trying to influence. There are a few questions here related to what you're looking for on the inflation side and on the labour market side. I mean, obviously the Fed does have a dual mandate at the moment. Unemployment is arguably too low. The labour market's too tight. Inflation's definitely too high. You know, both goals are quite consistent. Um, presumably, as tightening continues, um, you, you will see um, that the prospect that, especially if inflation is lagging, um, any rise in, in unemployment, that the goals may no longer be consistent. Or, or do you not think that's possible? Do you think for now um, it will be the inflation concerns that will dominate um, what the Fed does um, regarding decisions as to when to take a pause on the tightening side? Yeah, I would just point to the 1990s, which was uh, a very good decade for the U.S. on the whole. Uh, we did have this tightening cycle in the middle of the 90s. Um, and then by the late 90s, uh, the policy rate was actually quite a high level, uh, unimaginably high compared to uh, what we got used to after that. And the unemployment rate went all the way down to... Uh, you know, below 4%. So by 2000, now we did have a recession, kind of a mild recession at that point, but I, I don't think it's quite as mechanical as what people uh, make it out to be. The dot plot did suggest that unemployment would tick up here to 4.4%. But as I said earlier, you might make that kind of prediction just based on uh, reversion to the mean of uh in the U.S. Uh, that the unemployment rate probably wouldn't remain at 3.7% indefinitely. Uh, so uh, I think it, it may be a reasonable assumption. I didn't put that down, but uh, I, it may be a reasonable assumption just to say, well, unemployment will probably go back to something over 4% because that's what the U.S. economy can sustain over the medium term. A recession, I would say, is uh, caused by a shock. So the problem for us is that we're raising rates. We're trying to get inflation under control. I've said that's like walking a tightrope between two tall buildings. And uh, and you're trying to walk the tightrope. 
you sure hope there isn't a big gust of wind as you're as you're trying to walk, walk the tightrope. But I think that's that's as we're trying to go through this process. If something else happens that's uh, very negative for the U.S. economy, then that's what would push you into a recession. So I think we're at higher recession risk. But I don't think that's the base case uh, at this point. And it's not just because of uh, interest rates, uh, short-term interest rates being at 313 on the policy rate. Uh, I don't think by itself that's not enough to uh, cause a recession in the U.S. So, um, But because we're raising rates uh, and relatively quickly and, uh, you know, Growth is pretty slow. We haven't talked about growth, but growth is pretty slow in the U.S. Um, you know, you could get some other kind of shock that that would send you into recession. So we're taking more recession risk than we otherwise would, but I still think it's not the base case uh, for the U.S. economy. Um, actually, picking up on that um, and, and linking it into another question. Um, I mean, the question here is which uh, which cycle, every cycle is different. Is there any past period of rate hikes, inflation, et cetera, that you find comparable to our present conditions? And certainly you mentioned the 1990s and, you know, the 2000 recession is basically barely a recession. And as you said, it was something happens and it was the dot-com bust, arguably, that played um, a bit of a role there. Obviously, in the 90s, we had a soft landing in the middle of the 1990s. But if we do go back earlier, um, they were almost planned recessions, weren't they? The Volcker shock was, was definitely a planned recession. It was the only way we're going to squeeze inflation out of the system would be to force this economy um, into a recession. Um, but, but it sounds like maybe you think the current period, despite the high inflation, is, is not like the you know, 70s or 80s. It, it is still closer to the 90s. Would that be fair? Yeah, I don't think we have a, a very good historical uh, comparison. And um, that's why I've emphasized other types of things. But Volcker in particular uh, came to be chair of the Fed at a point where the uh, Federal Reserve had had uh, squandered its credibility over the previous 15 years and uh, had basically no credibility at all when he when he came into office. And so markets didn't believe anything uh, that he said or did uh, would contain inflation. So, And uh, there was very little idea even that the central bank could control inflation. There were um, many other theories around and, and ideas that didn't have much to do with central banking. So Volcker had to earn credibility every step of the way. He was sort of fighting with markets uh, every day uh, to convince them that he was serious about getting inflation low. Now, then you had inflation targeting come along in the 1990s, and all these central banks around the world were able to get inflation lower and closer to target, less variable. So it was a tremendous success story in the, in the 90s and the 2000s. Uh, and, and it was very clear. You assign the responsibility to the central bank, you let them do what they need to do, and you will get low and stable inflation out of that. So in that sense, we have way more credibility than Volcker had. And that's why I think we have a much higher chance of success, uh, both at getting inflation back to target and possibly doing it uh, without uh, serious damage to the economy. So um, I'm still hopeful that we can achieve that. But we are, I, as I just said, we're, we're certainly taking more uh, recession risk than we otherwise would have to if we didn't have the high, uh, high inflation. Um. 
President Bullard, um, Jim, I, I have about another 150 questions um, that myself and our clients would love to answer you. Um, you've been very generous with your time with us today. Um, we greatly appreciate us at it, and um, we're very much uh, with you in hoping that this doesn't end um, in a recession for the US economy. But thank you very much for, for covering so many of our questions, being very thank, uh, frank uh, with, with your commentary. And um, we look forward to hearing more of what you have to say in the coming weeks and months. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me. So this is a, a lot of fun. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Emerging Markets Spotlight. We hope you enjoy the discussion. HSBC is uniquely positioned to connect investors and corporates internationally. To learn more about anything you heard today, visit gbm.hsbc.com or contact your HSBC representative. Make sure you subscribe to HSBC Global Viewpoint and stay up to date with new episodes. Thank you for joining us at HSBC Global Viewpoint. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Make sure you're subscribed to stay up to date with new episodes.